Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of Existential and this new season of Existential that we're in now, I have a new friend who many of you have probably heard of, uh, Carlos Rodriguez, founder, CEO of Happy Givers, author, husband, father, missionary, yeah. all around cool dude. dude. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for making time, man, from Puerto Rico to come by and, and sit with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Corey. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate it. It's my joy and my pleasure. My full name is actually Carlos Alberto Rodriguez Ortiz Rivera Bagamburgo Pardo Garcia Gaguen Nazario, <laughs> which is part. <laughs> you don't have to put that in the show notes or anywhere on the title. We good. Just Carlos is good. I love um, it. But yeah, it's it's my pleasure to be here for sure. Dude, so for those of us who may not know your full story. Um, you know, without going back to the whole thing from, from birth, you know, I don't know how much you remember about coming down the canal, but I, I know like, you know, I, I, t- tell, tell us, man, just what's going on now and yeah. maybe some of the genesis of the work you're doing uh, mm. in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. And for caring, you know, yeah, um, Puerto Rico has had, we have kind of the yearly moment in the storyline in America, right? Where, mm. oh, there was mm-hmm. a hurricane they had some earthquakes oh they have austerity measures um and and so we feel maybe the best way to personify our story as puerto ricans in the context of the u.s we feel like a stepson like we know stepdad provides sometimes and at least we have a roof over our heads but he's abusive (laughs) he doesn't really love our mom we he lets us know that we're definitely not his kids you know yeah 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 and so we have that really bizarre relationship and and so Carlos Rodriguez is a Puerto Rican, had the very American evangelical experience. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham comes to Puerto Rico when I was 13 years old. I'm one of those kids running to the front, right, trying to get, you know, the whole salvation Billy, story. Billy Graham. You go, Billy, like, Graham, Billy Graham is part of this story. Billy Graham is, well, I found, I think I found the beginning of my story with Jesus with, with Billy Graham Losing Jesus was with Franklin Graham, but that's a different part of it. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a complex relationship with that yeah, family. For sure. Um, and so, yeah, I had that kind of classic, like, oh, I guess I'm a Christian now. I feel this, you know, this story of I'm a sinner, but there's salvation for me kind of touched me in a way that made me then start going to church, start getting involved, get baptized. My family background is very broken, unfortunately too common um, within our communities. Uh, alcoholic father who was abusive, who was unfaithful to my mom, mm. both in their second marriage. But there was something about the gospel that was always represented in my family, even though they weren't even trying. Again, my dad's second marriage, my mom's second marriage, I'm the firstborn. They have kids with their first marriages. Mm. We were always welcome at the table. Mm. And that was communicated, like physically and verbally, like... My dad's ex-wife is in our family photos. My mom's ex-husband, we, we spent time with him. My sisters, we couldn't call them half-sisters, half-brothers. We were always included. Mm. Somos la familia Rodriguez, mm. and we belong. The day after my dad was drunk, the day after my mom did this thing, the day after my sister made a mess, like the table is always open. 
And so when I heard the story of Jesus and this whole like welcoming, welcoming people to, you know, to be accepted, to be received, the Matthew tax collector right next to Judas, uh, the salad right next to Peter, it made sense to me because in my family, that was the story. Wow. And so I started to go to church because of that event. And my dad starts to go to church. My family is restored. Like my mom and dad have an amazing marriage today. Wow. And so like we were saying before starting to record, like, like the hope of the story of Jesus is too real to me to let it be wasted in mm. the politics and white supremacy and racism mm. and starting wars. It's too real mm. for what happened in my life and in my family's life too and in my mm. community. So I fight for it. And that's why I'm here in Puerto Rico. I started um, the Happy Givers which is a nonprofit organization. We sell per, uh, merchandise so that we can fund the work that we do as a nonprofit. But I was a pastor for 18 years, and that's 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 another part. <laughs> <laughs> lots of lots of people who were pastors, uh, especially in lots the United of States. Yeah, right, in yeah. the United States that, like, found themselves. Um, it's kind of my story. You find yourself yeah. with feeling like what you do inside those four walls does not have real impact in the world. And yeah. it starts, and once you begin to be interested in what's going on in the world, it's like yeah. what we're doing isn't actually making an impact, and there's got to be something else. Thank you. That I mean, that was basically it. I had the ascent, right? The kind of mm -hmm. in the I was more in the charismatic Pentecostal world, but mm -hmm. very evangelical in mm -hmm. you know, Republic. We need to vote for Republicans, and yep. the main thing is yep. top abortion, but yep. more with the charismatic Pentecostal flair to it which in a bizarre way made it even more dangerous because it wasn't just like we like Trump because we like his policies. It's like, he's the anointed one. That's the <laughs> it's like even worse. Oh, but I can't say no to God who chose him. We can't even disagree on like, you know? Oh, for and sure. <laughs> for sure. So I, I was a pastor. I got ordained young in a church in Canada Married my wife, who I met at that church. She's from Sheffield, England. We pastored here in Puerto Rico, but then we spent 10 years pastoring in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is mm. part of the Bible Belt, probably oh, like the, sure. Bible, the end of the Bible yeah. Belt. Yeah. Sometimes things the most. Yeah. Um, well, the Bible so, Belt, the, the, you know, the Bible has gotten really fat in America, and <laughs> that that belt is reaching out all the way, like, to Arizona, and, yeah, <laughs> like, kind yeah, of, it's longer you know, than into Virginia, and out in Colorado. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the Bible has definitely uh, put on some pounds in the last several years. Good point, good point. But, yeah, similar <laughs> to what you were saying, as a pastor, I'm saying these things. I'm not living them. Um, I look at the budget. I was the lead pastor of this church, and I'm looking at the budget and, like, what we're spending on actually helping our city and the poor and the broken and the hurting and the marginalized is, like, less than 2% over our whole budget mm. of hundreds of people giving and buildings and lights and sounds. And, and then we're spending all this money on events and conferences. And the one that really got to me was in the green room, you know, for the oh, special yeah. anointed people in the back. And yeah. The amount of money that we're spending there, and I'm like, we're charging people to come to this event that we're saying will start revival and transform America. <laughs> we're charging them for it so that we can really pay these. It was, but I had to admit I was part of it all. So was I. I was feasting on it. I had my salary. I'm writing books. I'm traveling. I'm feeling really good about myself. I was vulnerable enough for people to say, wow, the pastor's so humble, but not vulnerable enough for people to say, like, wow, the pastor should get therapy. You know, I, 
I can give you enough to make you to make me accessible, but not enough for you to be like this man shouldn't be leading anything, you know. Mm. And so, a really long story short, I just went through a crisis of faith. My marriage is like I have two young boys. My wife, I can't stand my wife. She can't stand me. Mm. But we got to play this role on a Sunday morning. Wow. And so, you know, props to my wife who said this has to stop. I ain't, I ain't playing this game anymore. Um, and I have, I'm, I'm, I'm full of anger and resentment and bitterness, but I can't even, I can't even realize it because I'm so in the role. Mm. And so we start going to therapy, which was life-giving. And I recommend anybody that is or has been in some sort of church ministry to get lots of therapy. It's just yeah. good to process, sure. and talk it out and to actually learn tools, to learn the triggers because without healing, we're just going to duplicate it in a less religious setting, but we're just going to duplicate the same crap, right? Mm. And so hopefully some therapy can turn that crap into a fertilizer to, mm. you know, do something good with it. But now mm. I'm preaching. Um, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> and in that, in that journey of therapy and restoring my marriage and really caring about the things that matter, that's when, like, oh, wait, yeah, like, we're just, like, playing, like, we're just pretending and then really the Trump era begins and it, it gave us clarity. And I was talking to pastors and they're like, and I'm like, what, wait, that's what you think of immigrants? And wait, that's what you think about Black yeah. Lives Matter? What yeah. You have an issue, yeah. a legitimate issue that you're trying to spiritualize about the statement Black Lives Matter? Yeah. Like, and so it, it brought me to a place of real legitimate repentance where I'm walking one direction. I need to walk the different direction because I'm leading a church, and that church is the 81%. They're the church that's voting for Trump, spiritualizing their vote for Trump, validating that vote. And so I couldn't sleep when Trump won for three days. It was just like, mm. and I had some African-American friends. They're like, oh, you haven't, this is America, bro. Like this. <laughs> oh, you just got here? Like you just, are you just now realizing this is yeah, America? <laughs> and, and so I felt like, oh, my gosh, like I fully embraced the privilege of my role as a lead pastor, mm. really, mm -hmm. like a, a, an American church. And so, you know, we can term deconstruction, decolonization. It all happened, bro. It's just like my heart is absolutely collapsing. Mm. My relationships, what I thought about God, about church, about other people, about myself more than anything. And so it's been a, it's been a hard journey, difficult journey, lost lots of friends and relationship, but it's brought me, I felt like the time in Raleigh, North Carolina was me figuring out all my no's. Like mm. God saying, nah, bro, you're not that great at that. You thought you were awesome. You're not. Mm. My wife saying, no, this is not good for us as a family. Me mm. saying, no, actually, this is not what I want to do. This is what somebody else told me I should be doing, but this is not what I should be doing. Mm. And so I had to figure out tons of no's to get to what I feel is our yes for our family and for our community here in Puerto Rico. It's amazing, dude. I love the story. I love how you, um, you kind of made sense of something I've seen coming out of your social media over the last several weeks or so, we can mm. talk about if in your deconstructing, deconstructing and decolonizing, if you don't mm. heal from it, yeah. the yeah. behavior will be repeated somewhere else. You know, and and I, I share that warning because I find myself as a, now a leader of an organization falling into the same traps from before. Mm. I share mm. that warning because I'm not pretending like I figure it out, not even in any shape or form. Yeah. I've established maybe a different kind of barriers around me. People that are calling me out, whereas they used to be like, oh, to everything. Now yeah. they're like, 
this it just happened this morning with uh one of my friends here who works at the nonprofit, and i'm like and we're gonna do this and we're gonna move she's like brood you're being too ambitious again like wow can we finish what we started can we honor the team we already told them this. and i was like i had to like this is this is like two hours ago Corey. i've had to like dude okay man. so so i man golly so I've I've had this similar experience recently where I have thought to myself in coming out of white evangelicalism mm. and discovering that there's virtue in other places. I, I, I'll never forget, I went to a, a group of men that were talking about racism. It was, there was a room that was led by my friend uh, who's been on the podcast, uh, Eric Butler, uh, okay. several years ago. And he's sure. got, there's, there's like a couple of Asian men, mm. a couple of white guys, a lot of black dudes in the room some formerly incarcerated, some former church, and we're having this conversation about racism. And it's the most mm-hmm. authentic conversation I think I've ever been in in, a, in an actual setting. And I left there and I wrote a blog called Church in the Wild. And I'm like, because this, I'm, I'm, I experienced something authentic and real and beautiful. And I thought, this is it. And yes. the longer you spend in those settings, you go, oh, but there's human beings here too, <laughs> right? There's like... Yeah. There's human, oh, yeah. and I'm human, and there's all of this stuff, and 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 I and I start so that you know start to feel this 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 virtue and purity of the mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus community. And it's like, oh yeah. my gosh, they're just it's so pure and, and so amazing, yeah. and there's no hierarchy. Yeah. And then you start to see the limitations within that community, you see the limitations in the black community, and and you keep yeah. running into human beings everywhere. So when you put out a statement, that's, <laughs> that's like, yeah, right. Everywhere. That's that's <laughs> like. You know, if you don't heal, you'll find this behavior is repeating. It's like I'm bringing with me all of my own baggage into each one of yeah. these quote unquote churches, and yeah. stuff is showing up. Some of which is my shit, and some of which is someone else's. And right. it's like what what I love to hear you advocating for is healing. Like, yeah, yeah. it's not just deconstructing from toxic theology or decolonizing yeah. from that. It's also doing the work of healing because otherwise you're going to keep repeating and become your own empire. Yes. Yes. And there are, this is what I've been realizing and still learning because I'm still going to therapy individually, personally, and with my wife and we're still, and I, and I've been realizing that there are things that I'm going to heal within the context of therapy. There are other things that are part of my personality that have the potential to be negative and destructive that I need to set up the right people around me, that I need to mm. enter into relationships mm. because I don't know if they're actually ever going to be healed. They're part of my humanity, part of who I am yeah. as a person. I need to yeah. radically accept who I am as a person, but I need that that leader next to me that tells me, bro, you're just being too ambitious. Stop that. Literally, that's, that's yeah. what she said to me this morning. And I was like, oh, yeah, I sound like this evangelical preacher like we're taking over the land (laughs) expanding the land here and she's like can we finish what we started please wow so that and so there are there's that journey of healing that i really believe in and there's that journey of like get behind me satan no matter how included you are in the inner circle you have to like no like you're doing something wrong right now and you got to be called out on that so i'm trying so when I was pastoring in North Carolina, and it might sound funny, but it was really real. When my wife was pregnant with our first child, we got really into that show, The Office. Yeah, I the love office, that show. Well, Michael Scott is this unaware. He has zero yep. self-awareness. Yep. And as I'm watching the show for the first time, I'm consuming it, and I'm loving it, and we're you know having some time as a family uh, with our firstborn coming. And I'm like, it was kind of the first time I'm like, holy crap, I'm like Michael Scott. 
like I'm the world's greatest pastor. And I think I am. And I assume, because I call people, these are we are a family. I assume that they all see me as a family, but they, they just got a job and they just got to mm-hmm. put up with me. And mm-hmm. I think that this company is the greatest company in the world. I think my church is the greatest one. Dude, you're a dying breed. Like nobody needs paper anymore. And, and I'm <laughs> I'm watching the office and I'm having like legit revelation about myself. Like, holy crap, I God, I need some self-awareness. And wow. so again, therapy helps, but also people to like be really obviously like, nope, that's not how it is. And maybe consider this other side. It's really helpful. So yeah, I can't man. get away in a way that whole language of family got so contaminated because I myself unfortunately use the language of family from a microphone as a pastor to get people to work for free and use the language of family to get people to fight my battles and do the work Mm -hmm. that I needed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And so we unfortunately overuse the language of family in church really to manipulate. Um, And also the whole language of community, like you need to be in community. There's a whole language of being in community. So people come to church on Sundays. And so it got so contaminated that I, stop valuing the reality of we do need family and community like there is no thriving without community there is no civil rights movement without the community of the civil rights movement there's literally impossible for the achievements to have been made without a collection of people coming together for one cause and so i'm trying to relearn some of the things that i thought i should have left no i need to heal them and i need to contextualize them better in my yeah man well, dude, before we started uh, recording this episode, you and I were talking about um, redeeming the redemption story, you know, yes. of, of how you're describing in similar ways to what Joe Lumen told us that the Jesus story was so revolutionary to you mm. that you decided I, I, can, I can walk away from evangelicalism but I can't leave Jesus. It's you know, it's where people will talk about throwing the baby out with bathwater. It's like, no, that baby's precious. I'm gonna drain this swamp. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. but like I, I got, I, I gotta keep Jesus because that was so redemptive to me. And one of the ways that I think the Jesus story is really redemptive, and what kind of to me separates it uh, from from a lot of other stories that we hear that I think are all valuable, mm. but what makes it a little bit different is mm. it's the idea of loving your enemy. Yes, it's the idea of preserving the humanity mm. of the oppressor right so one of the questions i had for you and and it's so funny because when i first became acquainted with your work and i had i bought the merch and i had the love your neighbor shirt mm-hmm. and i like I, before i'd wear it to kind of you know like i'd wear it to be a little bit of an antagonist in white sure. evangelical sure. churches as worship Me too. but one thing that it didn't say was love thy white neighbor mm-hmm. and i was curious <laughs> about like, because now i'm listening to you talk i'm like why was that in it seems to me it's like something that's intentionally left off the shirt yeah. So why, like, why, why leave that off? Because I, I feel like it's important for us to hear. <laughs> That's an amazing question. Uh, and the journey of the story was when I started writing those lists, I was pastoring mostly a white church mm. in the suburbs of North Carolina and, okay. you know, outside Raleigh, Durham. And so there was an intentionality about, hey, this is for you, white audience. Mm. Think about this. Mm-hmm. Um then I actually did one with white neighbor in the list. Mm. I've had four versions of that list mm. and that was short lived. I added it. And for some reason, it didn't sit right with me in the yeah. journey that I was going. Yeah. 
And it was almost responding to the criticism that I had from um, more of the white audience. Hey, you didn't <laughs> Why are we on the list? We don't get love? All lives don't matter. <laughs> that right there. And so I learned from the Black Lives Matter movement, no, you have to be intentional mm. about communicating. And it actually, and again, I'm going to preach, but it comes from Jesus. Mm. Matthew 25, Jesus is very specific. You feed the hungry. You don't feed everybody. You feed the hungry. You give water to the thirsty. You welcome the stranger. No, you don't welcome everybody. You welcome the stranger because the stranger is the one that doesn't get welcome. And then G Jesus uses language that almost could sound offensive, which is the least of these. When you welcome the least of these, you welcome me. Mm. Wait, is Jesus calling them the least? No, he's explaining how we see them. Mm. He's contextualizing like our experience with, quote unquote, the least of these mm. and so that was intentional i was like no 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 no. i'm tr i'm falling for the trap of responding to the you know using jesus to preach a kumbaya message that wow. jesus didn't preach he oh. welcomes matthew the tax collector so he stops being matthew the tax collector yeah yeah i'm not saying he doesn't welcome him for sure he welcomes him but it's that he stops being this puppet of the oppressor wow bro now that's and so that yeah. that is the, the 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 gospel of Jesus is towards something. It's not bring everybody as they are. It's actually as you are here, you're going to be transformed. And again, as a charismatic, and I, I love this part as a charismatic Pentecostal race in that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. The audience is defined to set at liberty who those who are captive, right? So Jesus multiple times clarifies the audience is the oppressed, is the marginalized, is the poor, is the hungry. They are the ones. For the benefit of the rich, Jesus needs to focus on the poor. It's Jesus. actually for the benefit of the rich young ruler that Jesus demands, give everything you have to the poor. Wow, bro. I mean, I think, that, okay, <laughs> so much in that. Like the, that, that loving my neighbor is, leave, loving my white neighbor is leaving them off the damn shirt. One, because. Oh. That's, if that's I, it. You said it better than me. If I include them on the shirt, what I'm perpetuating is this idea that yeah. it's not liberation. It's not freedom. That's it love. is it is it is conflating and 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 putting together oppressed and oppressor and asking that they all behave yeah. Yeah. Right, or, or all get the same reward yeah. when the gospel is no, in order to like you said, Matthew the tax collector, you can yeah. no longer be this. Zacchaeus yeah. said. I can no longer be this <laughs> if right. I'm now going to follow Jesus. The rich young young ruler is the only person. Yeah. That Jesus is like, yeah, you can follow, but you got to do this. Because all the other disciples is just follow me. There's no right. there's no That's other instructions right. to just follow. The rich young ruler is like, yeah, you can follow, but you need to do this additional That's step. Right. And right. I think you throwing him on the t-shirt is saying, there's there's you don't need to lay down whiteness to be a part of this community. And that's just not true. And not in our context. That has that's to be laid down. Yeah, Bernice can, she talks a lot about civility. Like we're looking, people want civility. No, we want justice. Yeah, man. Like we don't want fake peace. We're actually, we want to see justice, injustice in the concept of justice. Then we can have peace. Then, yeah, let's have everybody at the table. Let's have an awesome meal. We're not there. And society tells us we're not there. Police brutality tells us we're not there. Yeah. Systemic racism and economic injustice tells us we are not there. So we got to call it out for the sake even of the oppressed. So I 100% with all of my heart believe in loving thy enemy. But I love that Jesus kept the name enemy. He didn't switch it. Love exactly. thy 
ex-enemy. No, yeah. they are your enemy. They yeah. are taking from you. They are abusing you. They are the mm -hmm. ones, and you got to label it. You got to know it. You got to recognize it. You still choose that impossible thing, which is to love. Mm -hmm. But yeah, dude, gotta, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like you're not. It's beautiful, dude. I mean, so you before we were also talking before about one of the things that you found. Mm. Um, in South America, and you didn't work in Peru and Tijuana in yeah. Puerto, Puerto Rico. Yeah. One of the things that you found in these communities was what this term I came across several years ago called the Anawim, the 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 virtue or the the divine spirit among the poor. That's right. 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 So could you talk to us about like this experience in America with green rooms and yes. all of this money and then versus what you have now found yeah. to be a beautiful story in the work you're doing now. That's so good. The very first time, and it, it almost sounds, this this part of my story, I say it, I'm like, this sounds fake. But the very first time I used a computer, I went to a Catholic school in the town of Ponce, which is in the south of Puerto Rico, and we had computer class, which we all loved because it was the only room in the whole school that had AC um, and in hot Puerto Rican sun, right? We want, <laughs> we want the AC. And so anyways, my first time using a computer, there was a computer class. It was led by nuns, and it was like a multiple selection, and we were just learning how to like choose A, B, or C on a computer. And the question was this, does God prefer the poor? I must have been in first or second grade, and I have a memory of does God prefer the poor, yes or no. I, was, I kept saying no, like I'm choosing no because no, he loves everybody. Wow. And I, I, I remember the nun coming. I'm like, why is it? No, the preferential treatment for the poor. Wow. I, I do have a cultural benefit of having that beautiful Catholic liberation theology. Yes. Where, right? That, that there, there was language in me just because of culture that I didn't know I had. Yeah. And then when I get into more of a white evangelical context, I still had that voice on the inside. Mm. Like the choice is he does prefer the poor. Mm. Because preferring the poor, that's how he's loving the rich. That's how he, wow. that's how he's saving the oppressor by choosing the oppressed. Um, and so, mm. and so, yes, as you're asking, it's, I leave white evangelicalism, I leave my roles in America, I leave those opportunities and the travel and the books and whatever, and I start going to the places of most need, and so many switches had to be turned off. Even though I'm a brown man, the white savior mentality was there. And, oh, Puerto Rican, I'm going to save you, lower people, because you don't have Jesus like I do. And so oh my God. all that stuff, I'm having to turn it off. I'm having to turn off that desire to be the same. And I'm finding God when I'm not trying to push God. And I'm, and I'm finding in these places of extreme poverty, right? Like there is no other way to explain it. I'm talking extreme poverty, extreme need. We're talking hunger. We're talking no clean water available. And I'm feeling good about providing some solutions. And I feel good that I'm somehow using my level of privilege to help the underprivileged, but it's in that space that I'm finding God in the most real, most significant, most flesh way mm. that I've ever experienced. And so I realized I was trying to bring Jesus, but Jesus was already there. Yeah, bro. Waiting for me right there. Dude. And so, you know, it's been, it's been a, a nonstop journey of rediscovering God in the margins. And realizing, wait a minute, does it, and this is a question that I'm legitimately like, how much do I have to put myself in the margins if I really want to stay with God in that space? Mm. And I, I don't have answers. I don't have solutions. 
but I do have lots of questions and I, I'm still really hungry. I'm hungry for the real story of Jesus in the context of liberating the poorest people who are actually now my neighbors. Like this is not, it's, it, it used to be a list, but now I'm actually living in a community that has severe need that has to have to fight for just running water. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's more real. It's still painful. It's still brutal. And like we were saying before, it's still full of human beings yeah, that have man. all sorts of patterns, but for sure, Corey, I sleep better at night. Hmm. Um, and for sure, hmm. there's 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 an element of clarity and purity in what we're doing with our time and our, with our resources. That's a beautiful story, hopeful. dude. There's just no, there aren't answers. You know, you yeah. kind of we kind of live in this contradiction that like it's so funny because as you were saying it before you even said, hmm. I thought I was bringing Jesus to them and Jesus was there waiting for me. That's hmm. literally what I was thinking. Is yeah. that like there's this there's this mindset because of now how um, most of the influential churches have moved out of urban settings and into the suburbs yeah. that now you're preaching to predominantly just, we know how society works predominantly white audiences of influence and affluence yeah. about how to use their influence and affluence to help the poor and yeah. to bring Jesus to them. So some of it is like, it almost sounds like we have Jesus in our wealth and we need to share some of our Jesus our wealth with the poor people who do not have Jesus, that homeless person. If you, if you really think about our own implicit bias, especially here in the United States, yeah. when you see someone who's homeless, your thought is what did they do to get there? And it couldn't have been walk with Jesus, right? So helping them is introducing wow. them to Jesus. It's not wow. even, it's not even necessarily about like, you know, we, we can kind of take this and now I'm preaching, but we can kind of take yeah. this, like this, this really? Peter, silver and gold have a number such as I have, I give you and yeah. go, Oh, so if I don't have anything of substance to give them, I can at least give them Jesus because there's no way they have Jesus if they're homeless. Wow. Right. And so instead of now, what you're talking about is God is with them. Wow. Inviting us with privilege, inviting us not based on our salvation or how much of Jesus we have, but just based on the fact that they're in need, inviting us to where God is already present doing work and being like, oh, I was waiting for you. You weren't bringing me Wow. Over to to Africa or over to South America or wherever you or to the Middle East, you know, because it's so yeah. it's war torn war torn place where it can't yeah. be God. But yeah, we're dropping bombs all over the world. Like you're not bringing me. I'm inviting you into this space so that you can actually encounter me for real. And I think that's so much more beautiful than the story we've been telling here in the United States for the last 25 years. My man, that what a gift you just given me. Like we we are so this location here in Begalaha, um, three minute drive from here. It's one of the um, the places where it's easier, faster to get drugs, high quality drugs. And we do some service to the community there, mm -hmm. uh, cleaning the wounds of brothers and sisters who are living on the streets. Mm -hmm. uh, we've made good friends with who is like the godfather of the community who tells us when we can come in, when we can't come in. That's amazing. Uh, we hand out clean needles and condoms and, you know, trying to provide as much as we can, you know, healthy meals. Um, and as you're talking, I just realized within myself that I've never, ever entered that space expecting one of them to actually be the evangelist I need or the prophet I need or the preacher I need. That I've, 
as you're saying that, I went through like my brain just started going through all these interactions, and I've never actually, geez, Louise, bro, I've never actually like even contextualized. Like I'm entering a holy place where Jesus. the spirit is there speaking truth and life, and that where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, and that everything I've done is assumed that they're in bondage and they're broken and that they need help. And I've never once, like, as you're talking about, I've just been so convicted, legitimately convicted, that I've never once approached one single one of them with the message that I preach, that they are Jesus, that they are actually Jesus at that moment towards me, and that I could literally be in the presence of the bread of life, and I can feast. Dude, I mean, how many times have we... I mean, this is this is... This is a part of what we what we get out of being in white evangelical spaces is that who are the theologians that we ever hear quoted, right? Who, who are the books, the sources, the resources you go to? It wasn't until I started this journey of deconstructing and decolonizing that I'm like, no, there's I need to be reading from queer uh, theologians and from black theologians and scholars and from from sources of truth and sources of of virtue that I would never. That was it was considered like you don't go there you you know yeah. if if it's not John MacArthur you don't you don't read it you know so like to think Which about is getting worse and worse yeah, exactly right like really bad yeah so to think about the idea that you could find um, something true or beautiful about God outside of those boundaries of how would we ever imagine that yeah. I'm going to talk to someone yeah. on the street who yeah. has had an experience, a profound experience with God that could do anything for me, this American with all yeah. of my wealth yeah. and knowledge yeah. and books and everything else. Yeah. It's, I, I can't tell you how legitimately liberating that moment has been for me and how ready I am to go visit them again. <laughs> Just like, I can't wait to walk in. Like, okay, God, what are you going to say? Where's my prophet? Where's my pastor? Where's my preacher? Oh, God, that's And I experienced a little bit of this. I used to do workshops in North Carolina at Butner Federal Prison. Um, there's something about when you're, you know, when you're in a prison, you eliminate that first layer of, like, pretending, right? Like, when you yeah. go to a church, there's, they're in prison. They have a number. Like, you eliminate yeah. that first step. And yeah. you get to the beautiful, gritty reality of life and God and brokenness much quicker. And so I love doing my, when I release my second book, like I, I force myself, I'm like, my first book study is going to be in the federal prison. Hmm. Like they're going to, they're going to get first dibs on this content. If it don't work here, it's useless. Like I'm going to throw it out. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I want to, I legitimately want to thank you for that moment. You just, Oh dude. Yeah. But thank you, man. I mean, now you, you have a book. You have a book about flipping the tables of oppression. Yeah. Um, and could you just, before we go, and I don't, I don't want to hold you too long, before we go, could you talk about like what, how you identify with that? What is, what is so powerful about this notion of Jesus flipping over yeah. tables that would make you want to contextualize it in our space, in our time? Yeah. So my second book, which was released the night that Hurricane Maria is destroying Puerto Rico, mm. was called Drop the Stones. And Drop the Stones was kind of the beginning of that journey of recalibrating, um, you know, my faith and mm. my relationship to Jesus, the historical Jesus and the personal yes. Jesus. Yes, um, yes. So now I haven't released it yet, but I'm, I'm almost there, and I have a meeting with my publisher next week. Pray for me, everybody. Um, <laughs> it is. So the, 
the same Jesus who challenges the religious leaders to drop the stones is the same Jesus that in that very similar space in the temple, outside the temple, is flipping the tables of the money changers. Hmm. And all he's doing, again, in every context, in the context of John 8, when the woman is caught in the act of adultery, is a woman, right? The man is not being challenged. The man is not being accused. And literally, they're using a system, a religious system, to murder a human being. Wow. Because she was doing something with a man who wasn't part of it. And so the church loves to get to go and sin no more without doing the work of breaking the religious system that is yep. murdering people who are yep. not living up to the religious standards. Yeah, Lee. You can't even go close to go and sin no more without first saving their lives, breaking the religious system, breaking the shame, like pushing away. Literally, it says that it was Jesus alone with that woman when she, when, you know, when he said those wow. words. And so... Flip the tables is kind of like that, but to a whole audience. It's like you are putting all these barriers of entry, of access, of welcoming, and I can't just preach against it. I need to physically, with wow. my whole body, verbally, wow. intentionally, I have to be intentional, not just in words, but in action to demonstrate this is not how it is. Mm. Right. There is welcoming for the ones that don't have money to buy that one dove to pay for that one sacrifice. There's welcoming for them. This is a house of prayer for the nations, meaning all the nations, all the people, whether broken, old, young, poor, rich. It's And so Jesus is very intentional. And I just I love that journey from drop the stones to flip the tables. Wow. It's the same savior. And yeah, it's a I feel story. the whole generation. The, the older generation say, hey, stay here. Stay here at the go and sin no more. Yeah. And we're like, no, it's time. Like, we're literally at this point right now of the story. We got to. Well, what I, what I hear in that is that, you know, this 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 age old and I, I hate that I can't remember it in this moment who said it. Uh, but it is that it's it's not enough to be to not be racist. You must be anti-racist. Yes. It's that it's not enough yeah. to like to critique something or to be against it. What are you actually doing to to help build yeah. something better, you know, or to or to tear down? And I think there's value in tearing down. People are we've gotten so like respectable that it's like the idea right. that you try to tear down something that is causing harm, whether you're talking about defunding police or you're talking yeah. about yeah. like if you're speaking yeah. out against evangelical institutions that are that are harmful, like the yeah. idea that you want to break that up is like you're somehow wicked for that <laughs> for wanting to do that. But it's like it, what's the alternative to tearing down something that's causing harm? If it was truly God, that thing we're trying to tear down, that it couldn't be turned, exactly. you know, turned down. Exactly. So let us try. Because yeah. in the trying, you might prove something. But no, <laughs> man-made systems of oppression. So we know that they're not godly. Um, and, and again, I say this as much as I can with humility because I – was a beneficiary for 18 right. years of that system yeah, that oppressed same. and that won't put women down and put mm. people of color down. And I became a puppet of that as a person of color. I became a puppet of that system. Same. And but that doesn't that doesn't eliminate the responsibility I have to say I use that power and that benefit and that privilege. And I have to, you know, I, I if I read my first book, I'm like, 
Ugh, I'm like, look at it. <laughs> like, so much <laughs> is trying for me to be validated by these few white, powerful men. Let me yeah. say what they want to hear so that they give yeah. me platform, space, salary, whatever, mm-hmm. instead of actually fighting for the liberation of those who are oppressed, which takes flipping tables and a lot more. Yeah, I mean, you just gave me a gift with that last bit, man, of of staying uh, committed to the work that's, yeah, that, yeah. I, can't, I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna get into what you just gave me, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it a lot, bro. This this conversation has been really liberating for me, powerful for me, so much to, to sit with, and I'm hopefully for everybody that's listening, man. I so appreciate you taking time today. You're my brother. Please stay in touch. Let's keep this friendship. Next time we'll do a live version here in Puerto Rico. That's yeah, I'm, I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm into it. <laughs> Folks, that was Carlos Rodriguez of, uh, again, of Happy Givers. I hope you were inspired by that conversation even remotely as much as I was. Uh, thank you to all of you who are part of our Patreon community. Remember to keep listening after I'm done talking for some bonus coverage of this conversation. And thank you to all of you for helping us contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.